0: Okay, Exodus chapter 10. We didn't quite slip out the back of chapter 10 as we've been following these various plagues that God has been bringing uh, against Pharaoh in Egypt because of his refusal to let the children of Israel go is Uh, God has continued to make this request of Pharaoh, and Pharaoh has been obstinate and resistant, has been hardening his heart to the Lord. We've seen thus far eight uh, of the ten plagues that God has brought against Pharaoh, and yet still uh, he has continuously had this pattern of hardening his heart. And as we come now to the end of chapter 10, we get this ninth plague we left off there in verse 21 where it tells us that then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand towards heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, darkness which may even be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was thick darkness in all the land of Egypt for three days. And they did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place, for three days, but all the children of Israel had light in their dwellings. So, uh, as with the prior time, we saw again, as we said before, these first nine plagues prior to the plague of the firstborn, the last one that we'll then see is the culmination, the most severe of the plagues. Uh, they c- sort of come in couplets of three. As we've seen, uh, the, the third plague, the sixth plague, and now the ninth plague come completely unannounced to Pharaoh. It seems in series of threes, God announces and forewarned Pharaoh, the first two in the first and second plague. He told them what he was going to do, and then he did it. The third plague came without warning. We saw the same thing, the fourth and fifth, then the sixth came without warning. Now we just saw the seventh and eighth plague. God warned in regards to, remember, the you know, the boils and the hail, and now this ninth plague comes, uh, and notice that there is no warning. God just speaks to Moses... Tells him what to do in this ninth plague now, a plague of darkness. And again, not something natural, it seems. How did God accomplish it? Did he use natural means? Was it some sort of solar eclipse or whatever? Uh, you know, We can speculate, we can't be 100% certain. The bottom line is God controls nature <laughs> because he created all things anyway. So whether God orchestrated something in the creation uh, that he rules over, that he designed and has complete control of... Or whether he just overrode creation and, and did something sort of supernatural miraculous uh, we see this is certainly a very interesting darkness because notice it was a darkness verse 21 says which may even be felt so I don't know if you've ever been in just you know complete Pitch black. If you've ever maybe gone down, maybe a, a school trip or one of these kind of things, maybe you've gone on an exploring where you go down maybe into like some of these underground caverns or something, and then they'll maybe your tour guide has a lamp or something. These guys, then all of a sudden, he'll say, Look, this is what it's like in the complete absence of light, and he'll flip off the switch. And it you know, the darkness sometimes it, there is almost that sense where it is actually so dark, it's almost kind of an eerie, you can almost kind of sense. Something about the atmosphere, and this is the idea here, it wasn't just shady, it literally was for three solid days, it says a darkness existed that could actually be felt, you could somehow sense it, the idea is you probably couldn't see your hand in front of your face, God just caused this incredible darkness, and no doubt it was very symbolic, again, of the fact of where they were spiritually, they were in complete darkness. In their sin and their resistance to God, they were in a state of darkness. And again, this was just God, once again, indicating that he was the one true and living God. Because one of the main deities that the Egyptians worshipped was the sun god, Ra. So, to demonstrate, listen... Uh, Ra is not a true and a living God. God is the one who controls the light switch of the sun or anything else. And he can overrule your God at any time. And Ra was one of the main deities that they worshipped who was, uh, again, connected to the sun. God brings this three-day-long, pitch-black experience over the land of Egypt. So verse 23 says they didn't even see one another or rise from their place for three days straight. They're just in this very eerie Lonely darkness sitting there, no doubt, lots of time to think. Again, God's trying to get their attention. And I find sometimes the Lord has His ways, does He not, where He'll kind of put us in a place sometime where He kind of almost can, you know, kind of back a person into a corner and He shuts out everything and everyone from them, which is kind of what's happening here. For three days, they didn't interact with one another, they didn't go anywhere because they were circumstantially limited because of this darkness, and no doubt God was giving them time to just think. And and I'll tell you, I think sometimes the Lord will still uh, do this in the lives of people when he's trying to get their attention. He may kind of you know back them into a corner, and he just turns the lights off, and he lets everything kind of get dark and lonely in their life, and circumstantially he orchestrates something where they've got nothing to do but just think, and to really think hard through their own life and, and maybe where they're at in relation to God. And the thing that is very unusual about all this, once again, is here's this darkness over all Egypt, but notice verse 23, but all the children of Israel had light in their dwellings. So again, totally a supernatural thing. If you can imagine, here's just this one light over in the area of Goshen where they have light in their dwellings, and God again makes this distinction, showing that he has control, showing that he differentiates between those who are his people and those who are not his people. And in the midst of darkness, there is light for the people of God. And, of course, as I look at this, it just reminds me of the reality that exactly the reason why they had light was the presence of God. Remember, 1 John says God is light, uh, that God himself is the very source, the origin of all what is light. Jesus said, remember John chapter 8, I am The light of the world, and whoever follows me won't walk in darkness but have the light of life. And of course, in all these things, God showing his distinction, revealing himself as the God of light who rules over all these things. All the children of Israel, those same three days, they had complete light in their dwellings while the Egyptians and Pharaoh sat in utter darkness that could be felt for three days. Verse 24, then Pharaoh called to Moses and said, once again, he said this before, yet never in sincerity, Go, serve the Lord, only, notice, let your flocks and your herds be kept back, and let your little ones also go with you. Now here is the fourth Of what we've been noting, the fourth compromise that Pharaoh tries to offer and present to the children of Israel. Uh, We've seen a couple different times now where Pharaoh has said to them, Okay, you can go. You can go serve your God. You can go worship But he says, however, and then he presents it with a compromise, some sort of restriction or that they would make a concession to what God actually asked them to do, which remember was to go for three days out into the wilderness, that their families would go, their flocks, their herds, and that they would sacrifice to the Lord offerings and they would spend time in worship. And Pharaoh periodically has made these offers of compromise to the people. And here, this is the fourth compromise. Now, go serve the Lord. Notice, only, he says, let your animals, which they would use for what? Sacrifices. Let them be kept back. And again, as I said before, animals in this culture were directly connected with the economy. So in a sense, what God is saying to them, listen, uh, leave your resources or leave your wealth in Egypt. I mean, you can go worship God, you can go serve God, but don't go getting your economy and your finances involved in those kind of things. Leave those things back here in Egypt. Leave your money and your resources, leave that in the world. You can go serve God with your life, but don't go getting your uh, you know, resources involved and donating them and participating with them you just leave those things in Egypt you can use your life but don't let any part of your finances be connected to what you do with God somehow and and again this same concession the devil often makes to us where the compromise almost the language I have the two words uh, underlined in my bible here kept back because i think that's the compromise that the evil king the god of this age the devil like the god of that age in Egypt uh pharaoh I think that's the same thing Satan presents to us in his compromises is he says, look, you can serve the Lord, but, but keep back this. I mean, hold something back. And, and the devil is always trying to compromise with us by offering us the concept of, look, you don't have to go all in. I mean you can hold some areas back where the Lord says no I want all of you. I want you all in. I want your your love, I want your devotion, I want your time, your energy, your resources, your life, your family. I want you all in 100%. And the devil is always trying to propose to us some idea of okay, we'll go serve the Lord, but but, but this this area, I mean you can keep back this area. You can kind of keep this area under your control. Don't don't go all in and put everything out on the line and completely dedicate and devote everything over to God. Keep some part back from God. And that's always a compromise and it's never a good idea. Listen, everything belongs to the Lord. The breath in my lungs belongs to the Lord, my mind belongs to the Lord, my body belongs to the Lord. All the resources I own and possess, they all come from the Lord. They belong to the Lord as well. I'm just a steward over everything that God's given to me, and if I want to follow the Lord the way He intends for me to, if you want to serve the Lord, we should be all in. All in with everything, and be careful of that compromise spiritually, of keeping some area back, keeping something back from the Lord in regards to your service to Him. Verse 25, notice Moses again rejects this compromise, saying, you must also give us sacrifices and burnt offerings that we notice may sacrifice to the Lord our God. So, Pharaoh, this isn't going to work. We need to bring the animals because they will be involved in our worship and making sacrifices to the Lord. Verse 26, our livestock shall also go with us, not a hoof shall be left behind. So, Moses, (laughs) we're not even leaving one hoof. Uh, We're bringing everything We're going 100% if we're going, not a hoof shall be left behind, for we must take some of them to serve the Lord our God. And I love this statement, verse 26, even we do not know with what we must serve the Lord until we arrive there. I love that statement Moses makes. He says, listen, the reason why we have to bring everything, the reason why every single thing we possess and that's under our stewardship and responsibility in our lives must be dedicated over to God 100%. It must be given unto whatever God would want to do. Is Moses says, we do not know with what we must serve the Lord until we arrive there. In other words, as they were taking a step of faith, into an act of obedience, there were unknowns at the present hour that they would not have the answer to until they arrived at the place of obedience that God was calling them to. And that's why they had to be all in. Moses says here, listen, as we step into obeying what God has asked us to do, until we arrive there, we don't know all the details. Until we get to where God's asking us to be, We don't know what God's going to want from us. God may require these five things, or God may require these ten things. We don't know all of what God will require of us and how we might serve Him until we arrive to where God's calling us to be. And see, that's that's part of the life of faith. That's why we have to be 100% given over to the Lord, because God reveals things in our lives progressively. And what God may be calling us to do down the road or the next step of faith he calls us to take, whatever it may be, we can't have reservations in our hearts. We can't have areas of compromise because when we get to the place where God's calling us to be, we need to be ready with an open hand to release to the Lord whatever it is he would require of us. Whatever it is he may desire from us to say, Lord, whatever you want, you call the shots. Lord, do you do you want X amount of hours of my time? Do you want you know this amount of my resources? Do you want me to do this or to do that? And until we arrive there, a lot of times we don't have the answer. But that's part of a life of walking out in faith and obedience, that there are steps that we take that have unknowns until we arrive to the spot where then God usually gives us the next step of revelation after we walk forward. And that's what Moses is conveying to Pharaoh here and why he refused to compromise in any way. He wanted to be ready to serve the Lord when he arrived where he was supposed to be. But the Lord, verse 27, again, hardened Pharaoh's heart and he would not let them go. So again, now we see this process where God's confirming or granting to Pharaoh the stiffness of his heart and the rejection of a position, verse 28. And Pharaoh said to him, "Get away from me! Take heed to yourself, and see my face no more. For in the day you see my face, you shall die." So he literally threatens Moses's life at this point. He's become so incensed, he is so angry. Uh, again, and isn't it interesting how when a person's heart is hardened to the Lord? how much angst and animosity they can have to those who (laughs) represent the Lord. I mean, he's threatened to Moses' life now. All Moses is doing is just representing the Lord faithfully. But again, because Pharaoh's heart is hard towards God, and what's happening? He is wrestling with God so hard in his heart. But see, God's invisible, right? You you can't grab hold of God and, and wrestle with God. So what happens a lot of times? Well... From what I found, because we're kind of co laborers with the Lord and we walk in fellowship with Lord, a lot of times, uh, that person will wrestle with you and, and whether it's verbally or, or hopefully not physically, they'll begin to take out that angst and animosity and frustration towards you in their anger in a sense that really it's 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 Directed towards God, but it comes out in its practical outworkings towards you. And here, Pharaoh just gets so angry. Again, he just he's not winning. He is zero for nine with God. <laughs> zero for nine. Every time he's tried to outdo God, outman, he's zero for nine, and he is frustrated. You're talking about somebody who is an arrogant, proud, self-sufficient individual that does not like the concept of surrender. In his mind, he wants to be right, and he's going to keep struggling and trying to prove that he's right. And he knows he's losing ground. He knows internally, like any human being does when they're in this kind of position, that ultimately they are going to have to submit that they are wrong, but nobody likes to come to that place. And some are much more energetic in their resistance uh, than others. And Pharaoh was one of the type in that pattern. He just gets so angry. He says, Moses, get away from me. If I ever see your face again, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kill you the next time I ever see you. Just get out of my presence so Moses said to him, You have spoken well. I will never see your face again. And chapter 11 begins, And the Lord said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. So notice God now indicates something to Moses. Before, God didn't tell him when or how many uh, the plagues would actually be and when they would stop. God said that he would bring wonders and plagues, plural. But now Moses gets the sense this is coming to an end. It's coming to a culmination. God says, one more, Moses. This will be the final plague, the most severe one, of course, on Pharaoh and Egypt. And afterward, in other words, after this, be prepared because then he will let you go from here. And when he lets you go, notice, he won't just let you go He's going to actually drive you out of here altogether. He's actually going to compromise, in a sense, He's going to complement, excuse me, exactly what my ultimate plan is. This reminds me of how the Bible tells us God uses the wrath of man to praise Him. Uh, And here, notice, God ultimately is going to orchestrate events where Pharaoh is actually going to not just let them go. He's going to help facilitate their deliverance, even though he's in rejection to God, He's going to actually drive them out of his presence and push them away so that they fulfill what God's calling them to do. And I like the idea that God in his sovereign rulership and control over things can even take people's rebellion and people's resistance and the things that people do in opposition to God and even spiritual warfare. And he can somehow use all that and still channel it to bring about his purpose and ultimately orchestrate things for our benefit or to fulfill his plan For our lives. So he says, after this next plague, Moses, he's not just going to let you go, he's going to drive you out altogether. So speak now in the hearing of the people, and let every man ask from his neighbor, and every woman from her neighbor, articles of silver and articles of gold. And the Lord, notice verse 3, gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land. The idea is he had come to a level of great respect. People had reverence for him because they sensed the hand of God upon his life. Moreover, Moses was very great in the land of Egypt in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. So God gives instruction to Moses now in verse 2. And and we see the response of what happens in verse 3. And again, this is sort of a parenthetical section. We'll see verse 4, conversation picks back up with Pharaoh again, actually. So it seems the writer almost puts this in here as a parenthetical sense to kind of inform us of something Moses was aware of. It's almost as if the Lord had spoken these things to Moses. Uh, and he's parenthetically telling us these things, and then Moses will go back to begin to speak to Pharaoh in regards to this last plague, we'll see, and probably that happened before he departed from the palace there where Pharaoh had just said to him, get away from me, I don't ever want to see your face again, uh, that Moses went back in and finished this dialogue. But before we begin to look at that from verse 4 on, take notice what happens in verse 2 and 3 where the Lord instructs, That Moses is to tell the children of Israel to ask, it says, from their neighbors, that is the Egyptians, articles of silver and gold. And verse 3 says, and the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. In other words, the Egyptians complied, and there was a supernatural favor that God put into the hearts of these unregenerate people to actually bless and do good and kind things to God's people as a result of something that God did supernaturally in their hearts. And again, keep in mind, this is another fulfillment of the promise of God that he intended to accomplish for his people, and in a sense, to provide for his people. Uh, Turn with me back, if you would, quickly. to Hold your finger here back to Genesis chapter 15. And I just want to refresh your memory of this, because this is something that will happen as we'll go through the prior verses That as they are going out in the exodus, they'll ask and they'll go out with great abundance. But Genesis chapter 15 and verse 13, we go all the way back to Abraham. Remember Abraham, the first patriarch uh, who God said the nation of Israel would be established through Abraham. Then we saw Isaac and Jacob and then the, the, the sons of Jacob and Joseph and so forth. We're going all the way back to Abraham now. And remember, Abraham had this vision, verse 13 of chapter 15, And God said to Abraham, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, and will serve them, and they will afflict them 400 years, speaking of their time there in Egypt. And also, verse 14, the nation whom they serve, God says, I will judge. And look at the statement afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. So God gave this promise that He would create an exodus where they would be delivered out of a place where they were in bondage. And God gives this promise hundreds of years in advance before these events ever happen, and God promises hundreds of years in advance, look, when I am orchestrating my plans and purposes, and when the people of Israel are making this transition, God says that when they go out, they shall come out with great possessions. In other words, God says, I will make sure they are adequately supplied. He doesn't say how he's going to do it. He just says, I'll make sure they have great possessions to accomplish and facilitate what they're doing in that hour as they step forward into what I intend for them. And then if you look in Exodus chapter 3, come with me back to the book of Exodus, God told Moses again before he ever started this ministry experience that these same things would happen. Exodus 3 in verse uh, 20, God says to Moses... I'm going to stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my wonders, which I will do in its midst, and afterward that he will let you go, verse 21, and I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and it shall be, when you go, you shall not go empty-handed. But every woman shall ask of her neighbor, namely, of her who dwells near her house, articles of silver and gold and clothing, and you shall put them on your sons and your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. And then what do we read here? And we'll see the actual account happening. That here now this time has come. And a promise that was hundreds of years ago given to Abraham. God is now keeping his word in the present hour. A promise God gave to to, to Moses as well as he reaffirmed it during his call. God is now bringing it to pass. And it just reminds us that God's word never fails. If God says he's going to provide for his work and for his people, God will do that. And God said, I'll make sure that you have abundant provision, that you have exactly what you need to facilitate and accomplish what I'm leading you to do. And exactly the way God does it is all the more unique. If you think about it, he says, ask the Egyptians to give you gold and silver articles of value and worth. Now, again, just put yourself into the place of the Egyptian people the relationship with the israelite people what has just happened there has been nine plagues that the god of israel has brought against the egypt and the people of the egyptians so no doubt those egyptians are fully aware as a result of your god our nile just got turned to blood we had big lice issue we had the fly issue we had the pestilence all our animals died off We had the locusts that came, we had the hail, we had those nasty boils that were painful over our bodies. I mean, if anything, you would expect the Egyptians, right, to be like, are you kidding me? You want something from us? Well, we got something to give to you, but it is not our gold and our silver. I mean, the least likely individuals that you would think would say, oh, yeah, we'd be happy to support your little missionary endeavor, We'd be happy to support the work of God and here, take some gold. Whatever we can do to help finance your, uh, your calling and walk with – you would think they'd be the last people, but they're the ones that God uses. God puts a favor in their hearts and God moves on their hearts to be the ones that actually help support and provide for his people and their work. And again, it just impresses me to see how – where does provision come from? It comes from God. It comes from God. And when God says he'll supply and provide for our needs, we can guarantee and be assured he does that. And when we just do what God asks us to do, we can be assured that God will find a way, no matter what kind of crazy way he takes, to provide for us exactly what we need when he's leading us to do the very thing that he does. And again, just so fascinating to consider how the Lord gave favor in the sight of the Egyptians because that had to be supernatural favor. And they actually, granted, we'll see as they go out, they plunder the Egyptians. And keep in mind, really all God is doing is giving them back pay. Because for hundreds of years they were forced to, what, slave labor, and they were never adequately supplied the provisions and the resources they deserved. And they were never compensated, so God says, don't worry, I'll give you back pay. It came later on, but God gave them back pay, and in a sense, they were just really receiving from the Egyptians what they rightly deserved, in a sense. It wasn't as if God was stealing from them. They were just receiving what they justly should have when they were being mistreated in slavery for hundreds of years prior. Well, chapter 11, verse 4, it seems, again, like I said, keeps us back with this dialogue that ended chapter 10, where Moses and Pharaoh were in this conversation prior to his departure and walking out, Moses says, and the idea here is he's speaking to Pharaoh. We'll see as we follow the context. Moses said, thus says the Lord. This is now this last plague he's going to tell them about. About midnight, I will go out into the midst of Egypt, and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne even to the firstborn of the female servant who is behind the handmill and all the firstborn of the animals and there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt such as was not like it before nor shall be like it again but against none of the children of Israel shall a dog move its tongue and the idea is sort of a, a, a an analogy there of, of opposition a dog barking the idea is there'll be no opposition "...against the people of God, as there would be great severe opposing of those who rejected him. "...but against none of the children of Israel, shall even a dog move its tongue, against man or beast, that you may..." "...again, what's God saying? That you may know that the Lord does make a difference between the Egyptians and Israel. "...and all these your servants shall come down to me, and bow down to me, saying, Get out." and all the people who follow you. After that, I will go out. And then he went out from Pharaoh in great anger. So this final announcement of the tenth and final plague, the plague of the firstborn, where again God at this point demonstrates that he is the God over life and death, that he has control over all things. And isn't it interesting as the Bible speaks of sowing and reaping As this Pharaoh began his reign and his tremendous opposition against the children of Israel by doing what? Thinking that he had the right and the prerogative as a ruler to put to death. Remember he was destroying all of the male babies in Israel. In a sense almost as a sense of a genocide trying to take away their lives. As they now in a sense come to the reality that the one who has control over life and death is God himself. Now listen... As you look at this judgment of God against Egypt and Pharaoh because of this, you need to realize, as you look at God's judgment here, it is it is righteous, it is measured, and it is necessary. And whenever you see the judgment of God taking place in the Word of God, and, and as it unfolds throughout history, and there are times where God's judgment comes to pass, there is soon coming a time when the judgment of God is about to come to pass upon our Christ-rejecting world once again, you can always evaluate and clearly see that God's judgment is righteous, it is measured, it's not just an out-of-control unleashing of the wrath of God, God having a temper tantrum and just losing his temper and you know going on, it's measured, it's tempered with mercy. Again, as I said before, God could have just wiped the people out. He could have wiped the whole nation out in one fell swoop right away if he wanted to. God's, you know, smiting the firstborn here. God could have smited the entire nation if he wanted. There's a measured aspect of mercy always in God's judgment. It's measured. It's with restraint. Even God's judgment is tempered with God's mercy. It's completely righteous. I mean, the, the the patience and long-suffering of God at a certain point, God says, my spirit will not strive with man forever. He's very long-suffering. And this judgment, by the same token, is righteous because it was the only thing necessary at this point that was possible to allow things to come to pass the way they needed to with God's dealings with Pharaoh and the children of Israel experiencing the exodus to be removed. And it even brings together... The perfect opportunity for God to demonstrate salvation and redemption and to teach his people the lesson of their need of salvation in their lives just like everyone else. So God now announces this tremendous thing that's about to take place. It says where there will be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt and notice whether it was in the palace or whether it was the lowest slave that was considered the most uh, peasant-oriented type person, no one was immune. It didn't matter whether you were rich or poor, whether you were famous or unknown, whether you were a servant working behind a hand or whether you were sitting there on the throne. Notice, the dealings of God are totally equal with humanity. God is no respecter of persons. And somebody in the palace couldn't buy their way with God or bribe God. Uh, It didn't make a difference. God is is fully equal in his dealings with humanity. And he brings level ground in areas of his judgment and his dealings with mankind. So verse 8 says, Moses now, after announcing this, Pharaoh says, get away. And we read verse 8 that Moses went out from Pharaoh in great anger. Now, uh, is part of that a reflection ...of the fact that at this point God is righteously angered, that's possible. And maybe that's what that's an indication of. Perhaps the Holy Spirit there is also indicating to us... ...just a part of what seems to become the temperament in this man Moses' life. Because if you remember, the Bible tells us as well that Moses was the meekest man who ever lived. He was a very meek and humble individual, a godly man. But yet it does seem, when you study the life of Moses... Like every man that is just a man at best, that Moses had his own chinks in his armor, even as a man of God. And with Moses, it seemed the area of weakness for him was in the area of anger. Because if if you remember, what did Moses do the first time he tried to step into God's calling on his own? What was it kind of precipitated by? Remember when he murdered an Egyptian and tried to bury him in the sand? And no doubt part of that was probably a compulsive. He just was so sick and tired of seeing his people be mistreated that he wanted to do something to deliver them. He sensed that he was supposed to do something. And in a moment probably of sort of compulsory anger, he just reacted and you know, probably beat a man to death and then murdered him. And it was his anger that got him carried away in the situation. As you follow Moses' guidance as the shepherd that God raises up over the people of Israel, ultimately what gets Moses into a real jam? Remember, it says that when the people were complaining about a drink and that they were thirsty, oh, it was much better back in Egypt. You brought us out here to die and to die of starvation and nothing to quench our thirst. And God says to Moses, he says, Moses... I want you to strike the rock, and Moses sh- strikes the rock, and what happens? Water flows out, and the people's thirst is quenched. Later on, can you imagine? The people had the audacity to complain a second time. Now I know that's shocking, but they actually complained again, and the congregation was complaining about the same issue a second time, and they're blaming Moses for it. Oh, and again, they're transferring their anger and their frustration with God again. And they're transferring it over to God's servant, which is just a common, typical pattern. So they're complaining, you brought us out here, we should have just stood where we were, were, and God says, Moses, I want you to speak to the rock. It's very clear instruction. I want you to speak to the rock, and it will open and water will come forth. Now, what does Moses do? Moses, it says, in anger, says, you, rabble, shall I bring forth water? And he takes it. Boom! and he bangs the rock again now God doesn't punish his people for the foolishness of a man as a leader water still comes forth and the people's thirst is satisfied but after Moses in anger strikes the rock the second time when he was told to just speak to the rock and God would bring water he strikes the rock water comes out and then God says "Uh, Moses can you come here a minute we need to talk about something (laughs) And remember, he chastises Moses for misrepresenting him before the people of God. Moses, I'm not angry at the people. I know they're griping and complaining. Moses, they're they're human beings. They're sheep. They're they're weak. They're, I'm not angry with them. I, I hear their complaints. They're not even directed towards you. They're directed towards me, Moses. I'm the one that takes care of the people. You took that personally, Moses, and you let yourself get carried away in the moment, and you had to strike back and put the gloves on. And get. And Moses, what? And remember, God actually kept him out of the promised land. He couldn't go into the promised land because of his anger and his more important thing, that he misrepresented God to his people. God took that very seriously, and it was his anger... That he didn't have adequate control of with self-control. That actually got him into that predicament. So this seemed to be an area of weakness in Moses' life. Where at times his own personal anger would get him into predicaments in that situation. And of course we know the thing God was most upset about is that rock was a type of Christ. That Jesus had to be struck the first time for the living waters of God's spirit to be available. And now that the rock of Jesus Christ has been smitten one time... To pay for the sins of the world. He doesn't need to be smitten again and again and again. All people need to do now is to speak to Jesus. To receive from him the living waters of God's Holy Spirit. And there was a type that God was portraying there. And Moses messed up the typology. He misrepresented God in the moment. And he actually misrepresented a type in the Bible that God was trying to set forth. Because 1 Corinthians says that that rock was actually Christ. That was issuing forth the water. It was intended to be a picture. So... Again, we have this inference here that Moses went out from Pharaoh in anger. Is it that it's representing the righteous anger of God? Maybe, but it also could be again this indication, this little insight that this seemed to be an area where Moses, uh, godly man, but yet had a struggle at that little snare in his life. And you know, it can be the little things in our lives. You know, maybe it's anger, maybe it's lust, maybe it's pride, maybe it's lying. And we just have to be careful. The Song of Solomon says that we have to be careful for the little foxes that come in and you know eat up the vines and the grapes in our life. And often it's just those little things. One little issue in our life, if left undealt with, can really cause severe ramifications and limit us in what God ultimately wants to do for His life. We can greatly dishonor Him, and in many ways miss the potential and the opportunities God has as Moses had that issue with his anger. Verse 9, But the Lord said to Moses, notice, he says, Moses, Pharaoh will not heed you, so that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. So Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and again we read, the Lord hardened or made firm or stiff, that rejection in Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the children of Israel go out of his land. Now, Exodus chapter 12 and obviously we won't, you know, get through all of it this evening is probably one of the most you know important foundational chapters in the Old Testament. It is the record we have in the Bible of God's institution of the Passover. Uh, as he is about to bring the plague of the firstborn and his judgment over Egypt in this most severe judgment showing his power over life and death. In his judgment, God now institutes the Passover for his people that they may escape the judgment of God. And he teaches them the way whereby they would escape the judgment of God. Now, important to remember... Uh, from a perspective of what we're looking at here, yes, these record historical things, something God instituted for the nation of Israel. But let me just, for time's sake, read to you Paul's words from 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Listen to what Paul says here, so we can look into chapter 12 in Exodus. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 5, talking to the church at Corinth. He says that, therefore, purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you are truly unleavened, he says, For indeed, 1 Corinthians 5, 7, For indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore let us keep the feast not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So as Paul's dealing with an issue there in the church of Corinth, which was an issue of sin and sexual morality that exists in the church, it's as Paul's talking about that, the Holy Spirit reveals to him that, this understanding that Christ himself is our Passover lamb. Again, as we've said many times before, all the feasts uh, and the you know religious observances and things that we see taking place in the nation of Israel, whether it's the things in the sacrificial system or the feast days and so forth, all of those things were a typology and a foreshadowing of the person and the work and the ministry of Jesus Christ. In the same way the Passover lamb was sacrificed uh, in that day, Paul says, Christ Jesus, he is our Passover. Remember, John ultimately would say of Jesus' life when he saw Jesus on the scene, one of the first words out of John the Baptist's mouth is, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So I say that as we go through this, whether I point out every little... Typology and foreshadowing, uh, you know, spiritually, as you're reading and as you're studying this on your own, you know, put on the lens of Christ as you look through these things and realize these things speak of, they foreshadow, they point to aspects of the Lord Jesus Christ and the salvation that he brings to us as God's judgment passes over us, in a sense, because of the blood of Jesus Christ that's applied to our lives. Chapter 12, verse 1 says, Now the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be your beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. So God, notice now, He actually institutes a new calendar, you could say, for the nation of Israel. They have a civil calendar in a sense, which begins sometime around the fall. And now God institutes a religious calendar. He says then, look, this is a significant moment in your history as the people of God. For in this moment, God says, this will now be a new start for you as my people. A time in which you measure your life from a new starting point. God says this will now be the beginning of months the first month of the year to to you. So God says, you will now measure the beginning point from your life from a new starting point. And again, as we look at this, this new start for them that God's telling them about, does it not remind us of what Paul says as well in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 when he says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things pass away and all things become new. And in a sense, you and I as Christians, when we come to Jesus Christ and we experience his salvation, and Christ, our Passover, becomes real and personal and genuine to us, and we embrace the Lamb of God and the blood that was shed for our sins so God's judgment passes over us, at that point, when we're born again, that becomes the beginning, a new, in a sense, a new hash mark whereby we measure the beginning of our life from. I guess in one sense you could say as a Christian, we acknowledge and recognize two births in the same way they had sort of a civil calendar and a religious calendar. We have a physical day of our birth where we remember the day we were born physically, and then we should have a day of our spiritual birth when, in a sense, life started anew. It was a new beginning where we measure life from a new starting point when we embraced Christ and began to walk with him as a new creation. Verse 3, God says, speak, notice, to all the congregation, first time we find the word congregation in the Bible, interesting, tied to the Passover, speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, on the tenth of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb, according to the household of his father, a lamb for a household. And if the household is, notice, too small for the lamb, later it will be recognized that there need to be ten people to celebrate Passover. Ten people in the house equated to one lamb. But here God just generically says, if the household is too small, and we'll see is because they were to eat and consume the entire lamb, so God's giving them a reasonable way to judge out how to measure out whether they should join together in this process with another family to celebrate ...or whether they should do it individually... ...if the household is too small for a lamb... ...then let him and his neighbor next to his house... ...take it according to the number of the persons... ...according to each man's need... ...you shall make your count for the lamb. So, take notice... ...God begins to speak about this lamb now... ...it says on the tenth day of the month... ...they're to take a lamb... ...and they're to bring it into their household... I think it's interesting that chapter 12 informs us in verse 4 and 5 there, according to each man's need. Though they were to celebrate it together, there was an individual need in each and every one of their lives to partake of what the blood of that lamb would ultimately supply for them. And in the same way, we as a congregation come together, we collectively celebrate the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, His blood that was shed for us, we collectively come together. We partake of the Lord's Supper and communion, which in a sense has become the the culmination of the Passover feast for you and I as Christians. We collectively celebrate it together, but each one of us still has an individual need. There's that individual appreciation and need of the forgiveness of our own sins and that personal recognition, God says here, according to each man's need. It wasn't a collective thing. You know, I need to recognize my own need. You know, a child needs to recognize their own need as a sinner. I can't just sort of float upon the coattails of my wife's salvation. And a child can't just float upon the coattails of their parent's salvation. They need to recognize their own need. That they themselves have the need for the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, in their life as well as an individual sinner. And God wanted them to have that recognition. Notice verse 5, God says to them that your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year, and you shall take it from the sheep or from the goats. So a requirement God puts upon the lamb that they were to bring into their household is notice that it was to be without blemish. Now two things that indicates, first of all, that God didn't want their leftovers. He wanted their best from them. God says, look, this lamb that I want you to offer to me, ultimately verse 6 is going to say they're going to kill it, and they're going to offer it in a sense as a sacrifice and partake of it. God says, I want you to take a male of the first year, a younger animal, notice, and it has to be without blemish. That is, it doesn't have defects. It was pure. It was healthy. They weren't to go out, the idea, and to look among their flocks and say, well, Boy, I mean, this one looks pretty diseased, and it's missing one eye anyway, and it's gonna die soon anyway. So it, it, let's just give that one to God. Uh, you know, and we're very candid. Sometimes we can slip into that kind of of an attitude where we want to give God our leftovers. You know, when I have whatever I have left over, I'll, I'll give that to God, or I'll, I'll kind of give God second best, or God gets second fiddle. Life's all about me, and whatever I got left over, I'll just I'll just kind of. Throw God my leftovers. You know, it's often been said before, I don't think God likes leftovers any more than the rest of us do, you know? But yet we have a tendency sometimes, and God doesn't want our leftovers. He wants our best. He deserves first place, the first place of everything that we give him our absolute best. But the greater thing to realize is the idea that their lamb in Passover had to be a male without blemish is, again, it was a picture of Jesus. It was a picture of the pure, sinless life of Jesus Christ. We're going to talk about this more on Sunday morning in 1 Peter chapter 1 where Peter says that we were redeemed with the precious blood of a lamb without spot or blemish. And the idea being the sinlessness of the Lord Jesus Christ, the lamb of God who became the ultimate Passover sacrifice for you and I to pay for the sins of the world once for all, Jesus was without blemish. He lived a sinless life in thought, word, and deed. If you can actually I can't sometimes process, imagine, for 33 or so years, Jesus, without thought, word, or deed, never made a mistake. He never sinned. He was sinless that he might be the perfect sacrifice once for all for the sins of the world. And, of course, this pictures the unblemished, sinless life of the Lord Jesus Christ that would be offered as our sacrifice. Verse 6, God says, Now you shall keep it, that is that lamb, until the fourteenth day of the same month, and the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. So, on the tenth day of the month, God says to them, go out and bring the lamb in. And then, it's not till notice, the fourteenth day of the month, somewhere four to five days later, they actually were to kill their own lamb, they were to sacrifice it. And and I want you to take note as well. Notice verse 5, God says, your lamb. He says, the lamb. And then notice verse 5, he gets personal, your lamb. And if they're anything like you and I, again, what's the purpose of this? God says, take the lamb. Why not just go get it on the 14th day and just slit its throat? Because typically when they would kill it, that's what they would do. The father, usually or the head of the household, would basically take a sharp knife and run it across the, you know, the juggler area of the neck of the animal and just watch it plop down and, and bleed out. And if they're anything like you and I, as human beings, here they take this fuzzy little innocent animal into their home or you know tie it up right outside their door and it becomes a very much in a few days. You know how that is right. You have a little stray cat wander by your house, and oh, daddy, can we keep it? You know, or the dog, and all, and you get attached real quick. This pet idea begins to happen, and this experience of oh, this cute little color—they probably named it. You know, hey, Fluffy. You know, how are you today, Fluffy? Good to see you. You know, give it a little, you know, extra food or water, and and for a few days they connect with it on a personal level, and and then four or five days afterwards, they have to take a sharp knife and slit its throat. And this father who has to do this on behalf of the family, as the family is where, and they watch this innocent animal fall to the ground and reel around and bleed out its life in front of them. And there was an absolute sense of loss in their hearts when they did this. Because as they watched that, graphic as it would seem, if you really understand what's taking place, there would be a very real sense where this wasn't just something that was affecting their head, this was impacting their hearts, and there was a sense of loss as they watched and realized, oh my goodness, that poor, totally innocent animal just had to die for us. That animal's dying for us. That animal didn't That's a poor, innocent, little didn't even do anything. It's totally innocent, and yet it has to die for us. And see, I think God wanted them, if you understand the sacrificial system, to have an awareness of the reality of sin. And, and, and that, that sin creates the need for the innocent to die for the guilty. And if there was one thing, and I'm glad I don't live in the days of the sacrificial system, if there was one thing that the people of Israel understood as the sacrificial system was in full operation, they had a very graphic reminder, constantly, and a very clear awareness of what the consequences of sin resulted in. Because as they watched animals bleeding and and the suffering of an innocent substitute and they had to bring their own substitute, they realized that animal is dying in my place. That totally innocent creation is having to suffer because of something selfish I did or to make atonement for my soul. And it would affect them, again, not just mentally but in a very personal, intimate way, this innocent dying for the guilty – As they put to death this animal after connecting with it for a few days. And verse 7, notice, they shall take some of the blood, put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses. And they eat it, where they eat it. And they shall eat the flesh that night, roasted in fire with unleavened bread and with bitter herbs. And God says, do not eat it raw nor boiled at all with water, but roasted in fire, its head with its legs and entrails. And you shall let none of it remain until morning, and what remains of it until morning you shall burn with fire. So God now begins to give them instruction what they're to do with this animal after it's been sacrificed. He tells them here in verse 7 and 8 that what they're to do is to now take the blood and to apply it to the doorposts of their home. And of course we know the purpose behind this is that ultimately God is going to say to them... In verse 13, when I see the blood, I will pass over and he will not bring his judgment wherever he sees the blood applied. The blood of that innocent substitute would be the thing that God would would look to to pass over in his judgment. And again, it's a reminder to us of how Jesus, the Lamb of God, the Bible says that the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sins. So here they are now applying this blood to the doorposts of their houses Notice that verse 8 says they were to eat that night the animal with unleavened bread, and we'll talk more about that in the verses ahead. And bitter herbs became a part of this, and those bitter herbs as they ate them, and you know what it's like when you eat something bitter, it kind of you know awakens your senses. It, those bitter herbs ultimately were to be a reminder as they observed this continuously over the years to remind them of the bitterness of their experiences when they were in slavery in Egypt. And it was a symbolic way of reminding them, look, this is what life in slavery and bondage, this is is the bitter experiences of sin. Before you were delivered and God set you free, there was a bitterness to that lifestyle and that prior past way of living. In verse 9 and 10, God tells them that they weren't to eat the meat raw, nor were they to boil it. But notice verse 9 says they were to roast it in fire. And verse 10 says that it was to be totally consumed and whatever didn't get eaten, notice, was then to be burnt with fire and completely consumed afterwards. Now fire in the Bible is always a type and a picture of judgment. And again, this eating uh, of the animal not being boiled but it had to be roasted in fire and then whatever was not finished wasn't to be kept... It was to be just burnt up and completely consumed the next day. It's a picture, again, these are things they experienced, and they didn't realize it in that day, but it was a picture how the fire of God and the wrath of God would fall completely upon his son Jesus Christ, and he would be completely consumed as the fire of God's judgment fell upon his life. And thus you shall eat it, verse 11, with a belt on your waist and sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. The idea is readiness or preparedness. And so you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night. And strike all the firstborn of the land of Egypt. Both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Verse 13. Here's the purpose behind these things. Now the blood shall be assigned for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So as they applied the blood of that innocent sacrifice over their homes, God says the purpose for this is this is the means that he would provide to bring salvation or deliverance from them so that they would not suffer the judgment that was coming upon the land And that they would not experience the destruction that was coming upon the land in that day. Verse 13, I have it underlined in my Bible there. God says, notice, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. That's why it's called the Passover. Because the judgment of God, the wrath of God, passed over those who had what? Their lives totally together? Nope. Those who knew a lot of theological concepts? Nope. Those who felt like they were in a relationship with God? Nope. Those who could show their congregation membership card that they had been walking around with Moses? Nope. Those who gave lots of money to the congregation of the first church of Israel? Nope. The only people who God's judgment passed over were those who had the blood of the innocent substitute that God supplied for them applied over their lives so that when God's judgment came past, God says, when I see the blood, I'll pass over you. And again, this is all a beautiful picture and reminder of that is our blessed assurance. Our blessed assurance is that when God sees the blood of Jesus Christ, who you have put your trust in, applied to your life by faith, if you accept him as Savior, that is the only thing that makes the judgment of God pass over your life. It's not how great your faith is. It's not how faithful you are in the faith. It, you know, It's not how much scripture you know. It's not how much you pray. It's not how much money you give. It is nothing other than the shed blood of the innocent Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, who as the sinless Son of God made sacrificial death and atonement for our sins. And when we by faith believe that and trust in that, It is as God sees the blood, as God sees the blood of his son applied to your life by faith, his judgment passes over your life. And you know what? That's a great assurance because it is that alone that secures our eternal destiny and allows us to be free from the wrath of God falling upon our lives that we all deserve as sinners. Because let's be real, we all go through our ups and downs spiritually. Sometimes we feel close to God, sometimes we don't feel close to God. It's not about how we feel. It's about the simple reality of God seeing the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. And it's that positional, judicial forgiveness of the blood of Christ that spares us from God's judgment. So we'll look more at this next week together. Let's stand. Our times elude us. We'll pray and thank the Lord for the blood of Jesus and what it supplies for our lives personally.